Hello, and welcome to The Tattooed Mind. This is a podcast where we explore the intersection of mental health, self-care, and the art of tattooing. These episodes are dedicated to sharing stories, insights, and inspiration from artists who have struggled and overcome obstacles in their lives and career. My name is Mike Fisher Dubois, and I'm joined by Tim Pangburn. Tim is a tattooer out of Philadelphia who shares his lifelong struggles with alcohol and mental health. Tim's openness, honesty, and willingness to help others who struggle are what led me to want to talk with him in the first place, and our conversation did not disappoint my expectations. Before we listen to Tim, I'd like to make a quick announcement. If you would like to help this podcast out, there's a couple ways that you can do that. The first being by sharing this episode and others with your friends and artists who you think would benefit from hearing what we have to say. And the second would be by making a financial contribution. You can donate at the link in the show description. I appreciate any help. And now to Tim. My name is Tim Pangburn. I've been tattooing 25 years. I own Art Machine Productions in Philadelphia and Art Machine 2.0 in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. I uh, I got into tattooing when I was 19 years old. I was pretty pretty normal 19 year old. If you to get into tattooing, pretty normal. Did a lot of drawing as a teenager. It was uh, like like the party. Thought I could get into tattooing and felt like a party, which was kind of kind of funny because as soon as I started getting into a shop, I realized like, oh wait, this is serious work. I gotta gotta actually do things and can't can't drink on the job and stuff like that. Um, you know, I did a pretty pretty hardcore uh, old school apprenticeship. A lot of you know scrubbing floors with bleach and breathing in solder fumes, making needles uh, down in a little little dungeon in the basement. Um, you know, I didn't take tattooing very seriously first five, six years I was, I was doing it. I just thought I was cool because I was doing it. And I, I really spent all my time just partying with people. Uh, you know, was, I lived in like the punk party house. So, you know, every weekend was 40, 50 people on the weekends and like 10, 15 people every other night. So that's really how I spent my time. I started taking things a little more seriously, maybe uh, six, seven years in, I got married and my wife got pregnant with my, my first kids i have twins my first two daughters and that's when i started realizing like oh my god like other people are going to rely on me here so started taking things a little seriously really started pushing myself with the art uh drawing every day stuff like that i mean in all honesty i, I don't i don't think i did a decent tattoo for probably four years uh so it took me a little while i was i was slow picking up but i wasn't focused so it took a little bit of focus to to get me going I moved around a little bit, went out to Pittsburgh for a while, came back to Jersey, went to Atlanta, uh, went back to Jersey, came over to Philly. And, uh, you know, I, I did the whole tattoo thing. I worked a lot of conventions. I, you know, partied with my friends and, you know, tried to balance that with, with uh, having a family. And I was, I started, uh, I opened my own shop when I'd been tattooing about 12 years. And, you know, I, I had been working like a dog for years to get the money to open it. 
And I kept that pace going. 2011 was the year I opened. In 2011, I, uh, I was really hitting it hard. 2012, I mean, I was working 12-hour days, five, six, sometimes seven days a week for years on end. And in, you know, in 2012, I, I had what I'd say was my, my first major like breakdown. I, uh, I totally couldn't keep it together anymore. I was crying before work, crying after work. Uh, I was drinking completely out of control. Uh, that kind of, you know, built up to me getting a DUI in 2012 and that kept me sober for about six months. And it kind of, you know, brought down my, my, um, my anxiety levels and, you know, my, my energy was kind of brought down a little, like cut back on work a little bit, but you know, if you, you can't, you can't keep that cut back. You can't keep work cut back. You always go back to it. You always throw yourself back into it. And I always found myself pushing it financially somehow where I'd have to. So I'd get myself back into this corner where I'm like, okay, I'm back working 60 hour weeks. And when I was doing that every time it would uh, start to wear on me. And over the course of the next few years, I was, um, was real back and forth with, uh, my drinking habits, uh, drug habits. Um, you know, I was having problems running a shop cause it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. You know, I thought, oh, I've been tattooing a long time. I can run a tattoo shop. But then I didn't realize, you know, for one thing, I didn't realize nobody wanted to work 60 hour weeks like me. And then I just underestimated how difficult working with artists was. So I was having struggles with that and I was struggling with my drinking. I was starting to struggle with my mental health. Uh, I'd always had a lot of depression uh, since I was, since I was young and a lot of anxiety. I mean, my mom told me when I was three, I walked up to her crying and she was like, oh, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do to make money when I grow up. You know, I was three years old. So I've always been anxious and I'd always been depressed. And, you know, I, I just, it's 2014 that I, I got my first uh, diagnosis and I was diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety disorder, panic disorder, ADHD. And they suggested that I had a drinking problem, which I was like, nah, I'm fine. I can, I can deal with that. I can control myself. Uh, 2014, 2014 was like a big turning point. I had been sober for a little while. I fell off the wagon and the following year after that, I just spiraled. Uh, it was it just turned into complete insanity. Uh, my my moods were all over the place. Um, I became a, an all day drinker. So I was, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get sick every morning, and then I'd have a few, go to work, have a few at lunch, get done work, and then start drinking. And I was every day, and I was just out of hand. My home life was in in. Uh, it was just in shambles at home. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I wasn't putting a lot of weight into my diagnosis either. Uh, I agreed to go to therapy. My, my fiance had convinced me to go to therapy. And then I lied to my therapist for almost a year, which is insane. I'm paying this guy money to help me with my problems. And I'm lying to him about my problems. But it was uh, 20, 2015 that things finally came to a head. I was in the middle of a mass exodus of people from my shop and I had like five or six people quit and it was almost everybody quit. Oh, 
and I, in hindsight, I understand a lot of it was because of my mental health and my drinking. I, I was a fucking train wreck. Nobody knew what to do with me. Nobody knew what to expect out of me when I walked in the door. I, I was a complete madman. So it was, I remember, it was like my last night out. And normally I, I, you know, have my normal day drinks and then I'd have like three or four, maybe five and then go home and drink at home. But I had a few too many and I knew I wasn't going home. And I was at the bar, I closed out the bar and I was like, I'm going to the after hours bar. And then I remember getting down in the South Philly, it's probably seven miles away from my shop. I remember getting down there and I remember walking down the street. And the next thing I know, it's about six in the morning and I'm standing on the corner and my phone is dead. My wallet's gone and I'm seven miles from the car. So I was walking my way back. Um, it's a long walk. You got a lot to think about. Um, and I remember seeing the Ben Franklin bridge and saying like, that's, that's it. I'm just going to jump. Like, um, everybody's going to be better off without me here. You know, uh, I'd had bouts with suicidal ideation for a long time. Uh, had attempts in the past. I had long-term plans. Like, so it wasn't anything new for me to think that way. Uh, but I was committed to do it this time. And, uh, the only thing that stopped me was in my little twisted head. I thought that if I didn't email my fiance and let her know that that's what was happening, that she'd be worried. And, you know, cause it could take them days to find me. And I knew it would take days to find me. So I thought like, well, she have to know first. So she's not worried about me. So much you. And so I didn't jump. And I eventually got back to my car, got back to my house. And when I got there, all my stuff was packed and I just like collapsed on the floor. And, uh, you know, I was just in tears and asking for help. I said, I need help. I finally realized, you know, I had a problem. And, uh, you know, I got checked in. I got, they, they detoxed me, uh, got me set up with outpatient programs, got me set up with, uh, you know, some psychiatric help. And, uh, you know, I, I thought all was good after that. Uh, I got re-diagnosed in 2019 as bipolar. And I was on a ton of antidepressants, which when you're bipolar, you can't be on antidepressants. Uh, but those few years before I got re-diagnosed, I was doing great. I felt fantastic. Little did I know I was hypomanic the whole time. But uh, I was doing great. My, my tattooing improved. Uh, I, I had no problem working. I, I slept less all the hypomanic things. But what I didn't put together was that I was just sick. And I didn't know it. And then I, I finally, you know, got diagnosed as bipolar and I'm on these wrong medications and then COVID hits. My mother-in-law dies. My wife has a baby. She almost dies. And it was just everything kind of spiraled. And I went into this long-term, like two-year uh, episode. It's called a dysphoric episode where you're hypomanic and you're depressed at the same time. So it, it was... Uh, this long-term thing. And I stayed sober somehow. I don't know, but I did. So that's good. But I, um, I had another like mass exodus of artists had like five or six people quit on me, uh, at the beginning of that. And then toward the end of that, I had another like three or four, like I said, it lasted a couple of years. Um, you know, so I was really struggling with that. 
more recently, I've, you know, since I've been re-diagnosed, I've been going through med changes. I really, I feel like now uh, I have my head on pretty straight, especially after my last episode, which you would think like, you know, that's a terrible thing, but I kind of feel like I had to go through it. It was one of those things. I knew it was bad. It almost ruined my home life, almost sunk the business. But I think it was something I had to go through, something I had to experience in order to humble myself for one thing and also to really understand like what my my sickness was, really understand how bad it could be. So I've been out of that episode for a little over a year and a half now. And uh, I'm doing good now. Everything seems to be be pretty good. I have a solid crew with the shop. Uh, I'm real open about communication with everybody, not just like business wise, but also about like my mental health and stuff like that. So that that's the conversation we we have with people at the shop. Uh, you know, and they feel more comfortable being able to talk to me because they know my my own struggles with it. Uh, you know, home life is doing better now. Uh, but it's just something I keep in check now. And I, I, I constantly am doing work to try to, you know, try to manage it, try to understand that, you know, any of those things could come back. I could have another episode. I, I could fall off the wagon tomorrow. I don't know. You know, I can always say that today I'm doing pretty good. So, you know, I'm not drinking today. And uh, today my mental health is good. But I, you know, I just take time and reflect on that. Think about, you know, where I'm at, what I'm doing. Uh, if I'm doing things correctly, take time to think about my moods and stuff like that. You know, it's real good, real important to take time to self-reflect like that. Really does a lot for you. Helps make sure you're on the right track. Thanks, Tim. I love how just brutally honest you are in your story. I feel like a lot of us, when we look back at our own lives, we have a tendency to think of ourselves as the ones who weren't in the middle of the problems. We were just observers or victims of them. Um, and, and you really just own up and take responsibility. Like th this is where I was just being a pain in the ass. You know, I think at one point you said, that you were a madman when you came in and you really can't blame people for how they were reacting to you. Um, and that's something that I have had to really kind of struggle with personally, looking back at my behavior in the past. It's like, sure. oh, that is 100% where I screwed up. Well, you know, I, I did blame people. I, I definitely did. I, I held a lot of really nasty grudges. Uh, they're not all gone. I still have some, um, you know, some because of the ways that people left. I didn't, you know, people didn't know what to expect of me though. So they left in ways they felt were going to be the least confrontation, which, which I get. Um, so it's like, I, but I, I don't blame them. People, people do what they think is going to be best for them. Uh, I found that if I blamed other people, then it just lets me kind of be resentful and angry. And those are two things I can't let myself sit in. It's like, yeah, I get resentful. Yeah, I get angry, but I, I can't sit in them for long. It's like if I sit in resentment or anger too long, then 
you know, who knows where that's going to go. Those negative feelings all start to feed into each other and it'll ruin my mood. Who knows what that'll do to me? Yeah. I, I get that. The, the ruin my mood part. I often, the same people from the past, you know, that have, I feel have wronged me or whatever, uh, sit there and for whatever fucking reason, start thinking about them. I'll be in the middle of a tattoo of nothing to do with them. Haven't talked to them in 10 years. And all of a sudden I'm just mad. <laughs> funny thing about people wronging you though the the funny thing about that is that even if you feel that somebody's wronged you it's not necessarily them that you're really upset or angry with they just didn't live up to your expectations of them and it's nobody's job to live up to your expectations like that's something we place on other people like oh they're going to do this they're going to act like this they're never going to do this kind of stuff, but they might, you know, they might do things that hurt us and they might do things that cause us problems. And, uh, sure we can get mad at them, but in the end, like even that, even that is something we can't blame them for because we're the ones that expected something different. Yep. That's some, uh, that's out of Marcus Aurelius talks about that all the time. The, the Stoics. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I like the Stoics a lot. I like the Stoics. I, I like the uh, existentialists a lot too, because I kind of identify myself like a nihilist. So. <laughs> Who's your favorite philosopher then? Uh, I like Epictetus, and uh, he's probably my favorite. It's mine too. That's crazy. <laughs> I never went to college, but I was actually thinking of taking some philosophy courses, like just college level courses. Just have a little guidance with it because I uh, I was super ADHD so like reading is tough for me because I pick books up put them down lose them like <laughs> yeah actually actually bought a book on ADHD called Delivered from Distraction and I, I read two chapters and lost it <laughs> and, and then I found it a year later read a chapter and lost it again I don't even know where it's at that's awesome I have to do uh, ebooks because then you can't lose them. Yeah, I, I do audiobooks now. Okay. Um, so back to your story a little bit. Uh, have you gotten the opportunity to like talk with some of those people from the past then and kind of get back to them and be like, hey, this is where I was at. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry about all that shit. You know, I don't think um, I have I have talked to several of those people and some of them left on really good terms. But in hindsight, I understand why they left. Yeah. But um. Uh, Several left on really good terms and some left on like average terms and then a few left on bad terms, you know, yep. you have a lot of people come through. It's going to be a combination. Um, but some of the ones I talked to, one person had left on bad terms and they actually contacted me and they apologized to me for thinking that it was easy to run a tattoo shop because they went and opened their own <laughs> and then they apologized to me. Uh, a couple other people I, I've hung out with a few times and, uh, couple of them I've talked about my behavior, a couple of them I haven't. Some of them, it's just been kind of swept under the rug and forgotten, uh, which I'm okay with. There, there's been people I, I think about reaching out to sometimes just to just to kind of apologize for where I was, but I don't know if I'm necessarily ready for that. I get that. I, I feel like I'm in the same boat a lot of the time. Like I've got a, a list of like maybe like a half dozen people that I'm like, wow, I, I was black and white i was in the wrong and there's no wonder that this person doesn't talk to me 
um, I haven't reached out to any of them. It's like there's this level of courage that seems like it's hard to just make that leap and have the faith that that person will even like listen to you apologize, let alone accept it. Well, uh, having difficult conversations is difficult. Um, you know, part of, you know, I, I was in a 12 step program for a while and, you know, making amends was part of it. And, you know, I, I went through and apologized to a lot of people for my behavior. And most of them were like, Hey, no worries. Uh, one person yelled at me. Uh, I, I felt, you know, I, I felt terrible about it, but it was like a lesson. It was like, not everybody's going to forgive you for the things you've done. And I actually stopped doing that step after that because I realized, you know, you're not supposed to try to make amends with people if it could cause them harm yeah. or if it could create more trouble than, than it's worth. And I started realizing, like, I don't know if it's going to cause harm to somebody because I wronged them. I don't know how they're going to react if I come back and apologize. And I also realized that forgiveness is not for the other person. It's for you. And yeah, apologies can be important to some people, but in the long term, asking somebody to forgive you, you're doing it for yourself, not for them. Yep. Truly. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's, I guess it's, you know, you can know all that and then having the courage to do all of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Do you still do a 12 step? I don't. I don't. I I, uh, I did 12 step for about a year uh, and I just felt that, well, it was with my work schedule, it's hard to find meetings I can make it to, you know, uh, unless I was up at 5 a.m. Or things were just like out of the area and I couldn't get to them. I, but there was a clubhouse near me. So they had meetings all the time. And I can only make certain ones, though. And uh, I just found that after a certain amount of time, I had more questions than people either could or were willing to answer. And uh, I ended up doing most of my work with recovery in in therapy because uh, my therapist worked with a lot of uh, addiction. So he understood a lot of it and he helped walk me through a lot of things that, uh, you know, I didn't quite get. Um, I mean, the most important things with recovery are acceptance. That's the most important thing, you know, and acceptance and forgiveness of yourselves and everything. He helped teach me how to do those things. So this was the therapist that you decided to start telling the truth to, not the one yes. you were lying and, to. And if I got sober, I started telling the truth. And then I was getting my money's worth after that. He's a really <laughs> good therapist. I went to him for eight years. It's awesome. So many people uh, think that like their therapist, if they don't tell them the exact right things, is going to end up putting them in the psych ward. Um, and they don't realize their job is to actually help you keep out of the psych ward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I told him some crazy shit and things I would think. And, you know, I thought I was a really bad person for the longest time. Uh, you know, I would think, well, if I think of this thing in my head, does that make me bad? But, you know, I, I realized I could talk to a therapist about that stuff. And I mean, yeah, you're right. They're not there to lock you up. They're there to help you. So. So you talked about like how your bipolar has really like affected your life. And I think you called it a hypomanic stage is. Yes. Yeah. So when things start to feel like they're going right and like you're getting a handle on the world and your life and you feel like you're starting to figure out this balance, is there a fear that you're just going into another one of those phases? Absolutely. And it's like, I constantly question myself the whole time and, uh, you know, after my last episode, I, I talked to my wife about these things. So if I feel a little 
So I feel a kind of certain way. Like it's the thing with being bipolar is that you often don't understand what normalcy feels like because you're so often you're in a little bit of hypomania or you're a little bit of depression and, and you bounce back and forth. And a lot of times when you're not depressed, you think if I'm not depressed and I'm feeling good, then I must be normal. But a lot of times that feeling good isn't normal. It's, it's like above normal, you know? So it's like when I, when I start feeling like things are going right and I start feeling good and I'm productive, especially when I get real productive, I start worrying. Uh, that's like a sign. Um, you know, I, I start questioning. But, I, you know, I, I talked to my psychiatrist about it recently. And she told me that when you are questioning, that's usually a sign that you're not. Because if you're actually getting manic or hypomanic, the, the questioning isn't there. You like, because you, you're starting to think irrationally. So you're not questioning whether you're okay because you're just kind of running with it. And that's, so the questioning is good. And, and if I do start feeling a little something, the, the questioning kind of brings it down a little into reality. Uh, and again, I talked to my wife about it. She knows my symptoms sometimes better than I do. Mm -hmm. uh, watching it from that outside perspective. So she, she tells me, she's always make sure to tell me. It's great to have a partner who is understanding, but also like willing to kind of be a part of the team with that stuff. You know, a lot of the time we feel like that's the sort of shit that we have to keep to ourselves. Or like, if you're feeling that way, you're like, oh, I got to hide this again, like with the psychiatrist thing, you don't want people to know what's going on because then they might try to get rid of you to just prevent it from being a problem. Uh, and it's usually the opposite. Like the people that we would let know what's going on, like they want to help. Um, and it's so that's awesome that you've got a partner who's willing to do that. Shit that one woman is a saint. Like <laughs> after dealing with the things I put her through, she's a saint. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the thought of not wanting to, to tell when you're feeling a certain way, that you're afraid of what people are going to think or afraid of what they're going to do. The way I started looking at it is my honesty is one of my biggest allies. Uh, if I'm not honest, th this is why I came forward and, and I'm so open about, uh, you know, my alcoholism and why I'm so open about my mental health is because I've realized for me that if I'm not honest about it, then it creates like a secret. And if it's a secret, then it's a hiding place. And if I have a hiding place, then I can get into trouble there because I think nobody can see me. You know, so if I start thinking like, you know, I have this secret hiding place, then who knows how quick that might lead to me drinking again. You know, if I wasn't open with people, I have no accountability. So I've, I've always done it because of that, because, you know, just that honesty is, is really important. And I also think a lot more people are understanding than you think will be. I totally agree with you, um, especially about having to put stuff kind of out in the open. Um, another thing I think that does on top of like preventing you from having a hiding space to go drink in or to just sort of act however you want in is that if for whatever reason I ever do have a slip, you know, God willing, that doesn't happen. But if I do and I start drinking again, at least now, because I've been honest and upfront about where I'm at, there's a community of people who know that I put in real effort into being sober and trying to be better. Um, and, and so if, if I mess up, they're going to be much more likely 
to accept that as just a mistake and not as me just acting however I want again. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I, I worry, I have to be honest, but I do worry that, uh, if I, I worry that if I slip up, that'll be like it for my wife. Like she won't be able to deal with it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I think that's a, it's a valid concern, but it's also something that helps keep me in check too. Cause I don't want to lose the life I built at this point, you know, uh, cause objectively speaking, no matter how I feel, if I'm in a, a depression or something, but no matter how I feel, objectively speaking, my life is leaps and bounds better than it's ever been. So, you know, I don't want to ruin that. My daughters, they don't really remember me drinking. I quit when my older daughters were nine. Uh, they knew I drank, but I didn't like get it in around them. Like, you know, when they would go to sleep, that's when I really drink. So they saw me with my daily buzz, you know, and my little boys, they've never seen me drink. And, you know, being able to take care of myself while they're young, I'm seeing it, it's a different experience than when my daughters were young. It's, it's, uh, you know, I'm in a healthy relationship and I'm sober and I'm taking care of my mental health and my experience with my kids is different. It's like, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to let all of them down, you know? Absolutely. There's so much that, you know, you have going on for you. Um, and I think when I see people who are in sobriety and they just know what the other side looks like too, like it's just makes that like awesome life that you have right now is just so much more awesome because you have this comparison to put it next to. Um, and it almost makes us lucky because you look at somebody who's just life has always been okay, straight, you know, like maybe never like as awesome as we get to, you know, have it because they're not like partying all night and they don't get those super big highs, but they also don't get the you know, feeling of failure when you're not waking up for your kids on time or you're trying to figure out how the hell you're going to pay your car payment. But so we almost can appreciate this normal life better than most people can. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause I, I know before I quit drinking, I not only could I not imagine it, but I thought not drinking must be so boring. Like see people that don't party and you're like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why aren't you partying? <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? But it's like, also, I look back now and I know that if I hadn't quit when I quit, I would have been dead in a year. Like, that's where I was. Uh, I played out the scenario of how it would have gone and I would have been dead in a year, like, without a doubt. I would have been thrown out of my house. And then when I was thrown out of my house, I would have had to live in the shop because where else would I go? Blow through money on hotels and then not have money because I'm trying to drink so I can't go to the hotel. So I'd sleep in the shop. And then everybody would quit the shop. So I would lose the shop. Wouldn't have my daughters because I didn't have a place to live. And when I lost the shop, I'd lose the place I was sleeping and end up homeless. And then it's only a matter of time before I dragged myself to death or killed myself or got killed, you know? So I would have, I, I would have given it a year. So I'm lucky it happened when it did. Yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's about all I got for that because it's all of our, end right it's like the only possible end when somebody is drinking the way that you described and ignoring their mental health the way you were you know the, the jails institutions and death right those are the those are the three ends yeah. for an alcoholic my my brother uh 
my brother is almost 50 years old and he's been in some aspect of addiction for 35 years. So right now is he's, he's an active alcoholic, you know, all day drinker, all can't support himself. Almost died like three months ago in a car accident. He's drinking again, you know, and he's, he's one of those people I feel is just lost and he's not going to make it out of it, you know? And it's like, that sucks. He's my brother and all, but you know, I also understand that like we have choices we can make. Uh, and I understand a lot of people being an addict is not a choice, but getting sober is a choice. I didn't choose to be an alcoholic, but I look back at it. It's like the, it was every red flag was there from day one. You know, my first drink was when I was 15. I drank five or six beers. Second time I drank, I drank a pint of whiskey. Third time I drank, I drank most of a fifth in like a half hour and ended up in the hospital. It's like, that's the first three times I drank. And then basically stretched that out a little bit. And then it was lather, rinse, repeat for my old drinking career. You know, I'd be all right. I'd get worse. I'd do some stupid shit. So, you know, I didn't choose to be an alcoholic. It just, it was, it was just in me. It was just there, you know, but I made that choice to get sober. And I think, you know, we can't be blaming our past or blaming the situations for how we got to where we were. Because uh, we had choices the whole time, even if we didn't know it. Yep. And I think just to add on to that, too, you know, it's not even that you just made the choice to get sober. It's also that you continue to make that choice. Um, like a, a lot of people, especially people who don't deal with addiction, think, oh, well, why don't you just stop? And sometimes I think people don't understand that there is like a possibility of this fatigue almost because you have to continue to want to be sober every day. Um, you know, it's not like you can just be like, oh, well, I'm not an addict anymore. Quit drinking for three weeks and then go to a barbecue and have a couple beers like a normal person. You're like, I'm actually still an addict and kind of still stuck with that, you know? Yeah. And then you're right. It's a daily choice. I choose every day that I'm not going to drink today. Some days it's not an active thought because it's like, you know, it's that far from my mind. But some days it's like I have to actively think I'm not going to drink. And there's days I have cravings that bad, you know. Uh, but at this point, for the most part, I can I understand what my triggers are. I know how to step away from situations when it's time to. Like I love going to barbecues and I'll hang out at a barbecue. But once the food's going and everybody's just getting wasted, it's like that's time for me to go. I'm done, guys. Yep. You know, or when they, when they bust out the bourbon, I'm like, okay, I got to go home now. That was, that was my poison. So, you know, once certain things like that happen, and I know I step aside. Yep. But like, I know everybody has different levels. I know some people like can't be around a drink. And I, I respect that, but it's like, that's respecting our boundaries. So, yep. Yeah. I'm in a similar position with you where I just have to have like a, a way out once people start to get past like that two drink line, like up till then, like, you know, you're cool. You know, we'll have wine, we'll have dinner, whatever. Uh, shit. Sometimes we'll even have like a bottle of wine at the house if we have people over. But if there becomes a moment where people are now drunk, it's like, okay, I gotta go do. Other yeah. As soon as people now. start slurring their words, I'm like, yep. okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I think the big thing too is like to know that you have an out if you need it when you're in that position. Sometimes yeah. you'll never even use it, but just knowing it's there, it makes the whole situation a lot more comfortable, at least for me. 
Yeah, like I'm not going somewhere and riding with people. Yeah. Like I'm driving, you know, or my wife's driving. Uh, because that way, if I have to go, it's fine. I can go. And my wife's super understanding about it. She's like, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, just leave. She's like, I'll take you home. So does your does your wife drink much? A little bit. Not not too much. She'll have a drink, maybe two here and there. Uh she doesn't really like drinking. She wasn't a, a big drinker like I was by any stretch. So it hasn't been an issue for her to not drink, you know. That helps. She, that helps. She's not even one of those, she's not even one of those people that likes to like catch a buzz on the weekends or anything like that. She doesn't even like catching a buzz for the most part. Sometimes it happens, but she's not like about that, which is really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine having to like try and keep sober basically you like just keep it sane and sober i should say and having a partner who wasn't like supportive of that in being you know kind of sober themselves i don't think it i, I mean maybe for some people it works but i i don't think it really and i mean maybe for some people it does but i, I couldn't see it what do you have next coming in your career? What's your big plans as you start moving forward? You got your mental health a little bit more sorted. Well, I've been focusing on the new shop because I've, I've opened a second shop about a year ago. Uh, so I've been trying to focus on that. We're not fully staffed there. It's still building up a name in the area and everything like that. Uh, so I've been focusing a lot on that. Uh, I do want to start picking up conventions again. I kind of stopped... I slowed down with them when I opened the shop and I stopped altogether when I got sober because I always got into trouble at conventions. <laughs> so, but I want to start picking them up. I think I'm, I'm in a place where I know I can, I'm mentally capable of doing that. So totally. I did my first sober convention last year and I've done like two since three, I've done three sober conventions now. And I, get so much more shit done at conventions when I don't drink. It gets amazing. I remember people's names. I do cool tattoos. I fucking don't spend $300 at the bar buying tequila shots for everybody. It's been a yeah. really awesome experience showing up sober. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been to one. Uh, it, it was it was fine. I, I did good, you know. <laughs> I was okay. Uh but uh, I just haven't picked up any since. But I, I really want to now, uh, especially like I don't know. I want to I want to talk to some conventions and see about uh, maybe having like a free seminar about like mental health and stuff because you know I, I talk about it so openly to begin with, and I know uh, like I know a lot of people need to hear it. Totally. Uh, Especially, I mean, the tattoo community, like it's you got a lot of got a lot of mental health issues. Yep. You got a lot of like um, people that are trying to be little little tougher than they need to be. <laughs> Don't want to be you know open about their feelings and stuff. So it's like you have mental health issues. You have a lot of party and a lot of addiction issues. So I think uh, it's something that's good for people to hear. I know there's like a secret club of like people that go to AA meetings at conventions though. <laughs> really? I've, yeah. I, so I've tried to find that and apparently I'm not cool enough to get invited. I need to. I've heard about it from people. People have told me like, oh no, we go to, we go to meetings every convention. And I'm like, 
I can't, I can't even remember who told me it was so long ago. Well, if but anybody's listening to this and you've got that AA convention uh, hookup, let me know. Uh, Cause I would love to go to an AA meeting at a convention with some of y'all. <laughs> well, I know they also, I know there's an app for yeah. finding meetings and everything. So yeah, I use the website yeah. that lets you find it. I just don't want to go alone at some city I've never been to. I tried that no, I mean, uh, once and I just didn't enjoy it. So, well, also it's like you're going by yourself in the room where you don't know anybody. And, and then also like, you don't know the neighborhoods in a city you've never been to. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, meetings can be so different too. Like I've gone to meetings all over Chicago and you, you go to some meetings and it's everybody in the room is 60 and cranky. You go to some meetings and everybody in the room is 19 and obviously like screwing each other. And then you go to meetings where everybody's 60 and screwing each other. So, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. all, it's all over the place. So if you don't like know what the attitude is at a meeting, it can be really hard to even like want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I've been to some meetings like that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, But yeah, doing the convention thing is so cool. I think we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about doing the podcast. Um, Yeah. That's something that like, I've been playing with too. It's like having like a physical form of kind of what we're doing now where people can really get to sort of connect and be honest about this stuff within the community more. So. Yeah, I think it's necessary. I mean, I think it's a necessary conversation all over the place. Mental health and addiction should be something that's, it can be talked about. There's still so much stigma around both of them now that it makes it really difficult sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's something that needs to be talked about. And I think tattooing could use it, uh, especially. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's why I'm here. I've been dedicating a, a bunch of time to it. Um, it's God, it, it can get so dark out there. You know, I, it sometimes it seems like I can't go more than like a week without seeing some tattooer who I'm either friends with or mutual friends with takes their own life or somebody talking about getting checked into a rehab. And I'm like, you've been to rehab three times in the last two years. What's going on, man? Like, why isn't this sticking? Um, you know, it's just so like prevalent and all over the place, you know? Yeah. So unfortunately I happen to come from a town that has a long running, extremely bad heroin problem. Uh, I, have, and so this doesn't involve tattooing. So, <laughs> but there is so much heroin in that town that I, I literally lost count of how many people I know that have died. I couldn't even begin to count people that died or people that are still in active addiction. Um, and I can easily count on one hand how many people have made it out so far. Uh, you know, so I've been around a lot of addiction and a lot of death because of it. And, uh, yeah, I, I lost a, a good friend of mine a few years ago, right after about a year after I got sober, lost a good friend of mine in a heroin overdose. He, uh, that's it's a crazy thing. I worked with him for years. He was a piercer and I worked with him for a long time. We were really good friends. We hung out all the time. Uh, and when I moved away, I lost touch with him. And when I, came back i had kids and you know nobody wanted to hang out with the the guy with the wife and kids just 
it drove some things home for me when he died that I was like, that could have been me. If I was still hanging out with all these people, like I could have very easily fallen into the, to the same shit. Cause I mean, back then I was fine with like taking pills and stuff like that. I was party with pills. They're fine. They're okay. Yeah. You know, Doctor so, yeah, exactly. So very easily could have been, I could have been right there with him and I could have been dead of a heroin overdose. So it's like, I mean, yeah, you see it and it's just, it's awful because it's so prevalent. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. I've got a similar story with me. Um, the guy I actually got sober with, uh, we both were using and uh, I never used heroin. It just wasn't my jam. I was a drinker. I like Coke, but he, he was on heroin and stuff. And we got sober within like a week of each other. We used to party together all the time. Another tattooer year later he overdoses and i had talked to him like a month before he overdosed and he was fine he was telling me about how he was going to meetings and shit and it's just crazy how quick that shit gets to people you know it just sneaks right back up yeah actually my buddy that died he had been sober for a little bit and he died with his relapse yeah. yeah, a lot of guys do that. Yeah, they don't know their dose anymore after a few months off and then end up doing too much. Yep, it's exactly what happened to them. Well, and it's, you know, um, something they always talk about is like heroin is one of those things that you die, like heroin addicts die when they relapse. Like we were just talking about alcoholics die when they get sober. You said you had to go through detox. Did you get like sick at all when you were in detox? They had me pumped full of something for the first few days. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever. I'm sure it was whatever that drug is that I can never remember the name of it that helps you. Yeah. But I'm sure that's what it was. I'm sure. Because uh, I was not 100% there in those first few days. Totally. Yeah. You probably don't even remember like the first week after getting clean, huh? I I remember some of it. I remember some of them, I mean, I was in, they detoxed me in a dual unit. So I was there for nine days. Okay. Uh, but I do remember, uh, it's those first few days I don't remember really. I remember feeling groggy and I was, I don't know what I was doing now. Uh, and then I remember some of the, some other things. And then once I got out, it was pretty, pretty clear from that on for the most part. Did you go to an inpatient facility after the detox or did you get to? No, they, they actually wanted to, they wanted to send me inpatient. They were like, you know, I checked myself in, but they didn't want to give me the green light to check me out. And I knew if I didn't get the green light and I checked myself out that my insurance might not cover it if I had to go back. So I was trying to convince them to give me a green light. They wanted to send me to, to, you know, a rehab for 28 days. But, um, I was trying to explain to them, like, look, I own a business. I'll lose my business if I do that. And they're like, well, you need it. And I'm like, if I lose my business, like, how, how do you think that's going to make me feel when I get out? I think I'll stay sober when I've lost everything. My wife, she's my fiance. And she went in there and lost her shit on them and got me out. I did do six months of outpatient though. Okay. So I, I did continue treatment outside. Was that like six months of outpatient? What was that like? Was it like the three hours a day, three days a week sort of thing online or? No, no, it was in person. I think I think I was going five days a week. Actually, it might have been four. Oh, that was um, before COVID, so they hadn't started doing yes. online shit. Yet. Yeah, yeah, it was back in twenty fifteen. So yeah, I'd go and first we you know had to go through all these classes, and then it was like group therapies and all kinds of stuff like that. And they you 
check in with them. I don't know. I ended up, I actually ended up leaving before they wanted to check me out. I was argumentative with them. So. <laughs> well, so I was going to ask if it was a good experience or not, but it sounds like you it, just it answered that. for a while. I was learning a lot, but then there was like telling me like, well, you need to have a dry wedding. I'm like, I, I'm not having a dry wedding. Like I'm not, I'm okay to be around it. And they're like, you need to get rid of the vanilla extract in your house. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. <laughs> and I would tell them, I'm like, look, I understand that some people need to do that. I'm like, but I'm not one of those people. I don't need to do that. I know you have to treat us all the same, but we're not all the same. We're all individuals that, and they, yeah, they were, they didn't care. Well, it was one of the things was like the counselors we were dealing with weren't addicts. That's weird. I don't know if I've ever heard of like non-addicts being counselors for yeah. addiction treatment. Like it's always a bunch of people who have been through the ringer usually. I'd be way more willing to listen to somebody who was, you know? Yeah. But yeah, they weren't and it showed. <laughs> you know, and I think you bring up like something that's really important that doesn't get talked about enough at like a higher level at least is that addiction treatment needs to be so specific to the person going through it because every person is going to handle that shit differently that almost it seems like when you're going through a program like that you hit those basics at the very beginning and then once you get past that it's like okay none of what you're saying applies to my life yeah and that's what it was with me is um they didn't want to let me out because of stuff like that. So I ended up, I just stopped going because I went to my therapist every week and he's like, you're resenting going there now. If you continue with that, it's going to not only do you no good, but it's going to could damage your sobriety. And I was like, fair enough. He's like, I don't think you should go anymore. And I was like, all right, that's, that's all I needed to hear that somebody in, in a power position that understands me is able to say, you don't need this anymore. And and you wanted to be sober too. That's what's kind of funny to me about that. Because like, if you didn't want to be sober, you totally would have just been drinking that whole time and probably still going to convince everyone else yeah, that you yeah. were. Um, that's what like, I did. Thing, I was in IOP willingly. I, I, I signed up for that. I didn't yeah. get court ordered or something. Like I was there of my own volition. Yeah, that's, that's kind of weird to me. Uh, all those programs are so hard to like they just can't work at, at a proper level after like i said after that initial section where they're teaching you the basics sobriety is so personal that it, it just doesn't work to have big group classes where they read out of a fucking book and give you some worksheets to do you know like yeah the, the one thing that actually stuck with me the most out of it was they had you uh they had you tally up how much money you spent on your addiction yeah and it was when i that's when i finally realized i was spending five six hundred dollars a week on alcohol and <laughs> i was like holy shit yeah i i did that too and, and they had me add um my dui costs into that also mm. uh and that was a real real eye opener and at that point I was still denying that I had like a cocaine problem at any point. So I had never even like brought up how much money I was spending on coke a week too. Uh, yeah, dude, it got I bad. Could, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was at the point uh, before I quit, I was at the point I was borrowing money to pay the bills at the shop. 
Like I, I had just borrowed a few grain off of a friend so I could pay bills. I was like, we're in a tough spot. It was like, no, I'm just drinking everything. Yeah. You know, you know, when you're spending over two grand a month on alcohol, like it, it's really easy to run out of money when you're doing that. A lot of the time, like when we're stuck in those addictions, we're always trying to fix a problem, right? Like by borrowing money, we're like, oh, I've got this problem. I need to go fix it, find some solutions, some awesome, you know, conniving fucking thing that's going to let me continue to do whatever I want. When the answer is really to just deal with the problem that you have right in front of you. And this kind of goes back to you talking about your mental health stuff too, where like you acknowledge when you're switching phases and you're moving from a mania into a depression and vice versa. And it's like, okay, I'm here. There's no getting out of here. This is where I'm at. Now I have to know how to work with this instead of like just drinking myself out of like my hyper fixations. It was funny, like, you know, being an alcoholic or drinking all the time, but it was like being bipolar and being an alcoholic. It was like when I was depressed, I was drinking because I was sad. And then when I was manic, I was drinking to calm myself down. Like, because it was, I was just like, my mood was so high and I was like hyper and just like restless. And restless is like the best way I can put it. It's like constant restlessness. And, uh, and, and I would drink to bring that down. So I was like, I was drinking, trying to even out my moods more or less, you know, but that's self-medication for, for, you know, mental illnesses never work. <laughs> How do you deal now with being around people who are still self-medicating like at your shop or, you know, cause I, I assume you have to have artists that like smoke weed and you probably have guys that come in, they smell a little bit like whiskey in the morning. Like how do, how do you deal and interact with that sort of behavior now? No, nobody here is a drinker. Either shop, nobody, nobody really drinks. And I have a few here and there. A couple of people are actually sober. Um, some of them might smoke weed, but it's not. They're not like you know, wake and bakers or anything like that. Uh, you know, I don't care what people do. Like, I don't want. I'd, I'd rather people not smoke weed at work. But if they do, like. You know, don't smell like weed. <laughs> I mean, I know people that smoke weed and they just function perfectly all the time. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to argue it. Um, but you know, I, I don't really have anybody that parties. It's kind of like one of my one of my things now when I hire people. I'm like, you know, do you party? Do you like to drink? Do you like to, you know, go out and get it in? Because like that shit doesn't fly here. You know, was it ever something that? Blue there or was it just you that got to get away with that shit or did everybody get away with it before i got sober there were a couple of the guys here they were just as bad as me but i had all these mood instability too and i real short temper and you know i'm the owner so it was like you know it was a different position but i had guys here that party just as hard as me you think not being around that so much now is one of your keys to being able to kind of focus on staying sober and staying on top of your mental health? I don't know if, if it would be a key, but I just don't think I could have people like that around. Uh, and if, if somebody was going in small, like whiskey all the time in the morning, I'd be like, yo, like, this is a problem. Like, you know, first of all, do you need help? Like, but second of all, you can't be doing that here. 
I find that since I got sober, people kind of weed themselves out. You know, I've had to cut ties with some people here and there, but a lot of it, people just kind of weed themselves out of my life. Uh, they just don't want to, they don't want to deal with a sober guy, you know? <laughs> we're, we're fucking boring, right? All we want to do is talk about like our lives and, you know, real problems and quote philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned earlier you're an audiobook guy. Um, what's your favorite book you're into right now? Uh, right now, I'm not doing books right now. I was doing a lot of books. Actually, what I really liked was, uh, what was it? The, what was the name of it? I just, God, it, was, it was 50 Cent's last book. Oh, really? He writes yeah. books? You say last book, like he has more he's than got, one? He's got two books out. He's got two <laughs> books out. His last book, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it, it was uh, it was actually a good listen. It's mostly about businesses, like you know, personal okay. development like stuff. But like from Fifty Cent business point of view, you know, telling and, you how to buy I, vitamin water and shit. He talks about vitamin water in there, like yeah. he absolutely does. <laughs> <laughs> but he talks about like you know, it's it's uh, it's like you know, being from the hood and then how to level yourself up out of out of those kind of situations and you know, how to maintain your power stance and stuff. So it's like, it was a good book. I listened to it twice. Uh, but right now I'm, I'm on this real strong kick of, uh, so I, I've, I've always listened to like motivational speakers and stuff, but so many of them, I feel like I can't identify with. And like some of them, like, I feel like they're just too much into the positivity of it. And I feel like there's too much negative to, to not acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Every once in a while, you stumble on one that is acknowledging bad shit and still being positive and motivational at the same time. And for me, it's it's uh, Eric Thomas. If you ever listen to Eric Thomas, but he's I'm not familiar. No, he's this dude that grew up in Detroit and was like homeless, and, and like he's got a PhD. And if you ever need like a dude yelling at you, <laughs> he's the guy to listen to. But I've they just been on this pick of listening to him. Because he's awesome. got so much content out. Does he have a podcast, or do you just watch him on YouTube, or where do you find? I him? watch a lot of YouTube stuff because because uh, it's like he'll put up clips of speeches, and he's got so much more energy in the speeches. He does have a podcast called Secret to Success, um, but I, I listen. I a lot of times I'll listen to YouTube speeches because uh, I've gone and seen him talk in person a couple times, and he's just so fucking intense. Like, and it's like I like that intensity. Like, I like intense people uh he's not all chill talking he's like yelling and he's like screaming <laughs> there's like so much passion in what he's doing and so i've been on a kick of listening to him lately i just imagined uh one of those like sweaty southern baptist pastors like yelling into the microphone speaking in tongues he's i'm he's act he actually is a pastor too okay yeah um <laughs> So it's like you get a mixed bag when you're listening to his stuff sometimes and sometimes you kind of strays over and it's like a lot of it's religious. I'm I'm an atheist. Um but it, that his stuff doesn't bother me when it's religious cuz of what he's talking about still. He's yeah. just relating the things to biblical things. And it's like that doesn't bother me. Um I think a lot of people like lose that when they start talking about religious stuff too is that like hey like there is real like just 
condensed human knowledge and wisdom in this shit. Let's get that out. And, you know, you can leave whatever you want to leave on the table, but let's pick out those good things right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my dad always says, take what you want and leave the rest. Uh, yeah, actually my, my dad's a therapist and he's a, he's a, a lay minister, lay Buddhist minister. Okay. So he, he's, he's a good guy to talk to. He always tells me, gives it to me straight. Uh, but that's one of the things he always says is, uh, you know, take, take what you want and leave the rest. And I, I do feel that way about, about religion in general, you know? Yeah. Uh, cause yeah, they all have something to teach, but then there's other things. I don't feel like hearing this. I don't need to hear this. Like this doesn't apply to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're hitting, we've been talking a little over an hour now. Um, I'm going to give you a couple like little questions, uh, that you can answer as long or as short as you want. Um, if, if you were given the opportunity to just talk to somebody right now and give them one piece of advice to get themselves out of whatever mess they've found themselves in, what would you ask or what would you tell them? They have to be honest, you know, take responsibility for their own actions and, uh, they have to accept things as they are. You got to accept the current situation. You got to be honest about how you feel and what you're doing with it. And you got to take the responsibility that whatever your situation is, it's yours. It's your responsibility to get out of it. That's awesome. If people want to get a hold of you, get some tattoo work, if they want to chat about mental health, um, if they think they're struggling, how would they reach out to you? Uh, well, if... um. If anybody wants to get tattooed, uh, my website is timpangburn.com. Super easy. Uh, if anybody is struggling with something and wants to reach out, I'm, I'm always open to, to talk. If somebody's got an issue with like you know, questions or anything like that, cause I'm so open about the mental health and the addiction because I want to be able to help people. So that's why I'm open about it. So I'm here for that. Uh, but the best way to contact me about that kind of stuff is I have an Instagram strictly for things like that called Tim Pangburn Speaks. And if people try to reach out to me through that, th those messages always get answered. 